I think, I think I would, I would lean to the extent that there's a controversy between um, whether biomimetic design is the is a is a promising path for, forward. I would side with uh, I, I would side with those that um, you know, that think it's good to take inspiration from nature. Uh, but uh, but would really have to stop short there, and and you know, really have to have to involve the rest of non-natural sciences to carry it from 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 there. I think that um, being too cavalier on biomimicry, like drawing from nature, uh, can sometimes miss the point. I, I, I think a great example is the the carbon fixing materials, like looking at a tree. Um, the tree can fix carbon. Uh, but, uh, but adopting all the components the tree has sort of misses the mark. The tree is, is an organism expressing genes in an environment. It has lots of other, um, concerns. It, it needs to, uh, survive certain weather events, but it also has to reproduce. It fundamentally is focused on reproduction and survival. It looks like recently the field with like xenorobotics and so forth, they're going more the other direction. They're taking nature and mutating it towards towards the non-natural but um but in terms of like having completely synthetic things um self self-replicate uh we haven't made a lot of progress there and but i would also say that that is a characterization problem In this podcast, I'm sharing my passion and curiosity for soft robotics, where we share inspiring stories about the work we do and how we can push the limit. I am Mara Dweeney, and this is Soft Robotics Podcast. Support for this show comes from Science Robotics Journal. I really find Science Robotics to be a great resource for reliable and tangible research where we can really push the limit of the science we do in robotics. Great way to stay up to date with the published article is checking out the released monthly issue. All the links will be included in each episode description. We will also happen to have a regular conversation on the most published science robotic articles where also you can contribute with your question and thoughts about the research. Thanks, Science Robotics, for sponsoring Soft Robotics Podcast. So maybe if you can briefly, uh, how you'd like to define yourself or people, maybe first time listening to you, how would you like to define yourself? Well, my official title here, I'm, I'm, the, um, I'm the Carbon P. Dubs Professor of Chemical Engineering here at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Uh, I run a, a, a research group uh, focused on nanotechnology. I'm a chemical engineer by training. Um, I run a re research group of about 20 uh, students and postdocs where we um, combine chemical en engineering and nanotechnology to solve a wide range of problems in, um, in medicine, energy, material science, and that's, that's why I'm here today. Mm -hmm. Great. So maybe I'll ask you first and through you focus about how we can come up, for example, new material, one of aspects of research, and using chemistry and, and mathematics. I wanted to go before that to the plant because also something very interesting have been working on. What do you think about the design of material still missing in the material design? So um, I can go to this most recent advance to illustri illustrate it. Um, scientists have been thinking about whether we could uh, form a polymer, uh, polymerize in two dimensions, for several decades. I think the earliest reference we find 
is 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 in the 1940s, and uh, you know a polymer, as your as your audience might might know, uh, is a is a normally a snake-like molecule. We call it one-dimensional because its its molecules hooked one after the other to make a chain. So that's a polymer, and they form um, in some way the 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 plastics that we see all around us. The plastic case on our phone, the plastic. Uh, casings in our, um, our pl the plastic fibers in our clothing. Um, so polymerizing in two dimensions is, uh, makes a completely new material with, with, with um, different mechanical properties. It's a whole new area of material sci science. Scientists have wanted to do it for several decades. Um, the, the thing that our paper shows is, is that um, it's, it's a nanotechnology problem in, in, in that uh, we did not have the, the the traditional tools of polymer science are are not available to to completely understand if you've made the material or or, or not. So um, so we, we ended up having to do things uh, like imaging and um, atomic force microscopy. A lot of the tools that we that we use routinely in nanotechnology to figure out whether you've you've made a a, a two dimensional material. The the standard in the field is. Um, is uh, can can you show that the material is is just a, a molecular layer thick? That that's the the key signature that you've made a a two D material. If, if I go back in time in the forties, fifties, and six sixties, we didn't have tools that could answer that question. So I mean, someone could have in, invented this new class of material by accident. They wouldn't have a way to prove it. And so that that that's something notable that uh, in material science, at least in this two dimensional polymer space, we, we have a blind spot in that um, we need to tap new techniques in order to verify that we've, we've made the material. Maybe I want to ask you also that in, in kind of inventing new materials, when you look at the feature, for example, Blanzik and silver birds himself being in harsh environments, it's all featured together. If you can't give us a story behind how, for example, can we come up with this feature exactly what we see for a planet, for example, the design okay. process. Well, be, because we we've we've also been been working on uh, what are called carbon fixing materials. So this is an idea I've introduced several year, years ago. It's a it's a hard it's it's a hard uh, process to to realize. But uh, for carbon fixing materials, it was different. Um, people had not been thinking about that. The the inspiration really comes comes from nature. If you look at a tree, you know um, the uh, tree is repairing itself. It's adding more material. Uh, it adds material from the atmosphere, um, name, namely carbon. And uh, carbon is unique in, in that it's, it's available. Um, it's a, uh, not in high concentration, but it's all over the earth. Um, everywhere on earth you have access to uh, carbon as a, as a building material. So if you can make a material uh, that can fix carbon, in, in other words, pull carbon in from, from, from the atmosphere um, and attach it you know, to its back, backbone, you can make something last for forever. That, that material would then have the, the chemistry to repair itself and, and have a longevity that far exceeds what, what, um, what other mater materials have. And that's what we see uh, in, in nature. We see materials that are, um, uh, that are um, you know, on their face, they're, they're very fragile, right? So how, how, do, they, how do they survive? Well, they're able, they're, they're able to do this carbon fixation. They're able to, to constantly um, take, take in carbon from the atmosphere and um, 
in in some form, right? And and attach it to them or or build build themselves out of it. And uh, that is, we can ask the question: Can can we make synthetic materials? Can we make materials for humans that that do the same thing? Um, most of what's around you right now, if you look around, from from your clothing to carpets, um, even in the walls, all of that is is made of carbon. You know, it's it, in in some way. And uh, so th this connecting the ubiquitousness of uh, carbon in the atmosphere to 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 materials, I think it's a long time coming. Yeah, the uh, that's a roundabout way of saying we were inspired by 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 nature. Uh, now that that said, it's it's a it's a it's a very hard scientific problem to say. Can I make this block of material uh, sorb carbon dioxide? Um, input energy be, because you have to, and um, and then chemically make the materials that that represent its building block. Uh, we've made some prototypes. We've 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 learned a lot. We've made some some big advances, but there's there's more basic scientific research needed in order to 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 get that to happen. Mm -hmm. Maybe yeah. it's interesting when you say the material could be lost if there is damage. For example, they can't have higher toughness. That what you imply for that's gold, right? Yeah, so people have made, so there, there is a field of self-healing materials. Uh, people have made uh, polymers that are self-healing. There's lots of, of ideas. A, a lot of the polymer self-healing ideas, though, are, are limited by mass in the following way. Like one idea, it's pretty innovative and it does work, um, is you take, you, you take a material and you put little capsules of monomer inside. Like monomer is the chemical that, that makes up a polymer. And then if, if the material forms a crack, you could have it so that the monomer will bleed into the crack. You put some catalyst there and it'll polymerize. And, um, and those techniques work. My colleagues have done that um, and, uh, and it's very imp imp impressive. But it's a limitation in that the material itself can't gain any more mass than what you start with. And the second limitation is you, you have to start off by taking a good material and punching holes in it. So um, conceptually, it's good, but it has that limitation in that the amount of mass that you have to start with is, is fixed. Uh, a tree does not have that limitation. A, a, a tree can, can access an infinite reservoir of carbon, and that, and that really enables the tree. That, that, that enables, it can, uh, it can grow, it can add to its mass, it can repair defects, uh, but it can tap this infinite reservoir of atmospheric carbon. So that's what distinguishes carbon fixing materials. And there's no, and it is sort of a, a dividing line. Um, the um, the self-healing materials uh, field they they've advanced from little capsules to like putting vasculature in. You you can put like little veins through the material, and that and that does help. I mean, you can pump more and more material in, but still fundamentally you. You uh, you're not able to tap this infinite infinite reservoir. Just to highlight for your for your your listeners the scope of this pro problem, you need a uh, you need a catalyst that can take in energy like from the sun, um, and then it has to be able to reduce the carbon dioxide, which which is also a challenge in and of itself, um, to a chemical that can then uh, be transformed into a monomer that can then build onto a material. And you, you have to do this within the material it, itself. So it's a chemistry, energy, nanotechnology problem. It's a very hard problem. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Maybe I want to ask you in the space of the choices for 
this feature, image and self-healing, and also, for example, how we can design long-lasting material. Maybe I want to ask you your view about the choices of the solution or the way to go for approaching new solution or new design. Well, What's your view yeah. on that? Well, so uh, biomimicry is a great starting point. There's lots of debates in the literature where, um, to the extent that we can borrow from nature. I think we can be inspired from, from nature. Um, in, in this particular area of carbon-fixing materials, um, the, the more you want to borrow from nature, the easier the problem gets. So um, our first prototype material, we were literally harvesting pl parts from plant cells. And if you put, put, put that in, and you, and you can make a very impressive gel, you know, and it, and it grows. Um, but we don't build the world out of biological things exclusively. Some, sometimes we need things that, are, um, that have different combinations of properties. Think about airplane wings. Think about the sides of buildings in your home. So, um, so, so there we, we have to combine. We, 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 to, to some extent, to solve these problems, we have to move beyond what nature can, can provide. Mm -hmm. That's good. Yeah. Maybe I want to ask you again about the design and coming up with new material. Which one is significant to you? Is there a material side development that, that's part, or the other part is the architecture or the morphology and how the shape can really change the game, how the material would behave? Which one is significant to you? Oh, the molecular, the, the, the underlying molecular structure of a material plays, plays an enormous role. Uh, in in the yeah. properties that you realize, yeah, I would. I mean, if I were to say, you're talking sort of ph philosophy across all all materials, but um, but but no, that that's the impetus for um, asking qu questions in the first place. Like, can I polymerize in two in two dimensions? Why do I have to polymerize just in one dimension? And um, and that's our recent advance. Just for your po podcast listeners, um, my group uh, we invented a a two-dimensional polyaramid, which is sort of like a Kevlar. But we were, we were the first to be able to polymerize it into two dimensions. So, um, uh, so yeah, the, the, molecular, the underlying molecular structure, if you, can, can, if you can access new molecular structures, you can make new materials for, for sure. Whether you can design that, I know you've asked a few times about design. It's, 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 it's tricky. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if it's a universal... Um, you know, e even even in this case, uh, we did not de design. What we really did was discover a new mechanism for for how how materials synthesize. Mm -hmm. yeah, there is something maybe still a challenging for you when it comes to developing new material. What are maybe the key challenges so far? Maybe in your group, or maybe generally speaking, when it comes to new material, maybe for example, having capabilities to repair itself or whatever feature you're looking for. It is something. Key challenge here. Still, Hand, hands hard down, to solve. it's hands down, it's characterization. Um, we, are, we, we, uh, as material sci scientists, uh, chemist, chemical engineer, we have not reached the limits of what we can do for to characterize the unique materials that we can make, especially at multiple length scales. Um, and I say that, and and I'm sort of spoiled because never before in history have I had access to very powerful tools. Like I can send my students into the lab with collaborators. But I mean, I can image individual molecules. I can even identify, I can image uh, atoms in a solid material. Um, but I can't do that easily. That, that's the thing. We have these powerful tools, um, transmission electron mic microscopy. It can give us atomic resolution. Um, it doesn't mean that I can understand everything that's in my sample. 
it takes um, one of the things that uh, people don't realize in the field uh, or, or is underappreciated in the field is that uh, when you image at the atomic scale, you're seeing such a, a very, very tiny part of the, of the material. You're also pre-selecting for the parts of the material that can be prepared easily for that kind of imaging. So I would think the main limitation today is characterization. We need more powerful tools. I think, um, I think in the future I can envision someone will solve the problem of, of high throughput chemical imaging. It'd be, be wonderful to have a technique that, that you could um, image the underlying chemistry at the atomic level, but in a, in a, in a high throughput way, in a way that's very robust, where you, where you can see it over different length scales. Um, that's, and uh, that's an opportunity. There's still a lot to discover in that space as, as well. In uh, hierarchical materials, materials that form, um, generally if a material forms a very well-defined crystal, it's easy to understand it. We have a lot of tools designed for crystals. So if something's forming a perfect crystal, uh, you can understand a lot about its structure and then its chemistry. If, you, um, if it doesn't though, it's much harder. It's, um, it's, it's harder to describe and um, like I said, especially if it shows anisotropy and um, yeah, so I'll, 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 I'll leave it at that. And I agree with you, it's very hard to understand what's happening in molecular scale. For you, how to connect the dots that, to get a meaningful explanation in this scale? And what's differentiated from continuum scale, for example, to have a picture of understanding here? Well, uh, scientists, um, scientists better, better than I have, um, uh, have, have introduced a wide variety of new, new tools. We, we, have, we have the ability to do what's called multi-scale modeling now. So there are researchers that can simulate materials at different scales and link them together. That turns out to be a very powerful tool. Um, even in this recent study that we, we, we did, I was uh, fortunate to be able to collaborate with my colleague Heather Kulik um, and her group does density functional theory. They're able to, um, those tools have just become absolutely essential now. So um, if, you, uh, if you have a hypothesis of what a material might look like or what its structure should, should be, um, we're, we're very lucky now we can go to a computer, we can ask it to solve Schrodinger's equation, and we can, we can uh, mainly falsify hypotheses. We, we can rule out structures, and, uh, but, and there are things that, that we can learn. Um, it's, um, so, that, so this multi-scale problem is difficult, uh, but, we, but we have uh, tools to tackle it today that, um, that we've never had before. Mm -hmm. And what makes sure that the design is really reliable? For example, for example, sensor design or sensor material or material work with actuator and sensor at the same time or higher toughness. How do we make sure this reliable design in the end? Yeah, reliable design, it's interesting. Um, yeah, the, uh, you can try to build in a design for reliability. Let me try to think about that uh, because... Uh, Reliability, I often think of as um, as uh, re reproducibility of techniques and things like that. Um, that's very much uh, that that can be as much process oriented um, as uh, built into a molecular design. Um, yeah, when a when a design leads to variability, uh, we think of something as unstable. So that's a, and, and I guess you could design a material to be to be stable. Um, so may, maybe that's the answer you're, you're looking for is that um, 
there are lots of materials we can make, but if they're fragile or unstable, then there's something about the design that's not reliable. Is that it? Does that make sense? That I agree with you, yeah. And maybe I want to ask you when it comes to maybe the other question do you think still challenging to be answered in that space? What are the challenging questions do you think? Well, so it's interesting. If you're synthesizing different materials, um, materials that are unstable or metastable uh, become very hard to characterize. So uh, if they're a pathway towards a big discovery, then, then that sort of becomes hidden. So um, if, you, uh, if you need to make a precursor and it's not stable, it doesn't live long enough, then uh, it becomes a challenge even to verify that you've made it. And that, that does come up in material science. It's come up in my, um, it's come up in my own work sometimes. Yeah, so let's think about that. What, what are the blind spots in material design? It, I, I think what you're getting at is, is that, uh, is that um, you know, metastable materials are, can sometimes blind us from a, from a promising synthetic pathway. Yeah, I uh, would agree with that. Um, yeah, the uh, but but ultimately, I'm going to come back to characterization. I think um, I think the the more we can measure and understand in, in materials science, I think we're going to discover more. Uh, and I think my my recent work is probably just a very small um, another indicator in that column. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting this part. Maybe I want to ask you when it comes to characterization and understanding what's happening. Is it something was counterintuitive or surprising while doing this process of characterization to explain something was counterintuitive or surprising? Well, uh, yeah. In terms of in terms of something that is uh, that's counterintuitive. Yeah. Let me think. Like. Um, Let's see, uh, a, a counterintuitive aspect re, re, um, that is um, that that comes up in the material science space. Yes, yeah, so like for behavior or in that in the characterization. You I, find have I have an example. Interesting. I have an, an, an example in in one area of, of my lab. We make um, we make nanopores. We make very small pores. We use uh, molecules that are that are called carbon nanotubes, and they're hollow. And so, I mean, researchers have wanted to do stuff in, inside the pore uh, for quite a while. For one kind of experiment, uh, I want to seal that pore between two chambers. You know, think, think about like I want to put, uh, put a chemical on one side and something else on the other side, and I want to be able to look at flow. It turns out something that's counterintuitive is that um, a thick piece of plastic or even silicon dioxide uh, it's, it's almost impossible to seal to form a uh, to form a, a micron size or a nanometer size seal um, with these materials that you think should like things things like plastic that make up your your plastic bag. You you will always find um, you'll find that they leak they they leak at the at the nanometer scale, but nature has found a very thin and seemingly fragile way to seal materials. Uh, and it, it's, it's with the lipid bilayer membrane. If I replace that piece of plastic with just a, a soap bubble, like a, just a, a, a lipid layer that is, um, that's a part of every cell, boy, like you can get, you can get a, a giga-ohm electric field seal with this like nanometer, 
and it, it seems so, so that is often counterintuitive that um, that uh, uh, a a material that's um, a hundred even a thousand times thicker that humans might might slab down there uh, is still leaky and porous whereas the simple lipid bilayer membrane just makes makes a perfect um, a perfect omic seal and so uh, that that can be counterintuitive, B, because if your if your goal is to make a material and you want to seal something, um, you're thinking things that are thicker, maybe higher density, but you sort of miss this I, I, idea that um, this this fragile thing that self heals and involves lipids sort of moving and swimming in two dimensions. It somehow does such a great job of uh, preventing an electric field from from going through. So that's one counterintuitive. Example. I don't know if I have others. <laughs> I'm trying to try to. Yeah, I will say in the two-dimensional pol polymerization space that um, is was thought to be impossible, which which is uh, why we're excited about the development. Um, we asked a number of organic chemists, uh, um, actually our collaborators who who were on the paper, they did um, they did some computational studies. And saying like if if a molecule could look like this in 2D, it would have some advantageous pro properties. And those studies were published. And, and actually, one of the one of the criticisms that reviewers had on those pay papers were like, well, there's no evidence that these materials can even be made. And actually, when our collaborators went to chemists to say, could you make this material? Organic chemists said, no, you can't you can't make make that material. And and they were correct. Like there's there aren't. There aren't existing methods and mechanisms in order to, to, to make it. So, um, yeah, so this recent advance has been uh, in making this two-dimensional polymer involves a completely new mechanism. Uh, so you, you could call that as counterintuitive. Mm -hmm. Great. We want to ask you if there's something you disagree so far when it comes to the space of material design and coming up with new material. Uh, From your perspective, disagree. You disagree with well, I think, I think I would I would lean to the extent that there's a controversy between um, whether biomimetic design is the is a is a promising path for, forward. I would side with uh, I, I would side with those that um, you know, that think it's good to take inspiration from nature, uh, but uh, but but really have to stop short there and and you know. Really have to have to involve the rest of non-natural sciences to carry it from 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 there. I think that um, being too cavalier on biomimicry, like drawing from nature, uh, can sometimes miss the point. I, I, I think a great example is the the carbon fixing materials, like looking at a tree. Um, the tree can fix carbon, uh, but uh, but adopting all the components the tree has sort of misses the mark. The tree. Is, is an organism expressing genes in an environment, it has lots of other um, concerns. It, it needs to uh, survive certain weather events, but it also has to reproduce. It fundamentally is focused on reproduction and survival in, in ways that uh, we don't necessarily want an airplane wing. And so um, I think we can borrow inspiration, maybe borrow, learn from the catalysis that, that's happening inside the natural system. I, I think we have to stop there though. And and uh, I think scientists will come down on different ends of the of the spectrum. There, I think if you if you look at the developments in synthetic biology, 
colleagues there may differ with me. They may say, no, um, the, the power of biological te techniques, I think um, ultimately you could envision a world that's, that, that's all derived from, say, a synthetic bi biology. Um, yeah, I, I would err on the other side. I, I would err on the side of, uh, of um, you know, getting inspiration but not, not generating all of the mm -hmm. solutions through biology. Mm -hmm, great. Since you could have a few questions, maybe I want to ask you when it comes to which, which listings the design of the material. For example, as a robots community, we speak about how we can design actuation sensing in a reliable way and have enough forces and a high response time. For you, how would you think about the wish list and the design of the new material, coming up with new material? How do you see the wish list? Is it something maybe trade-off that you can't really close so far just to come up with all the wish list features in one material? Is this something still conflicting or still hard to come up over this trade-off? Yes, I think I think there it can um I, I think there are fundamental limitations into uh, the kinds of functions you can combine in, in a material. Um, I think that um, ultimately you have to start at the molecular level. Um, in the past 10 to 20, maybe 30 years, uh, material science, we have been inventing completely new materials that we haven't inspected in science bef before. I think that that is uh, promising. It moves us in the right dir direction. So a lot of nanomaterials like uh, graphene car carbon nanotubes, but also material architectures like super lattices. Um, I think that they, they open up the, the parameter space, but, uh, but ultimately it's, it's an empirical one. I think there's a, there's a role for, uh, for discovery, maybe combinatorial discovery. Um, but ultimately I think it starts at the, at the molecular level that, um, uh, that ultimately limits the the number of, of properties that you can com combine. Uh, sometimes in, in the literature, um, you, you you can see people losing sight of uh, the fundamental trade offs you have to make in order for a material to um, uh, to have these combination of, of properties. So for for example, to go back to an example I used b b before, uh, the concept of self healing, but starting from punching holes inside the material. And putting capsules in, so there's a um, there's a fundamental trade-off there. There's a, a a conservation rule, and that's the the amount of mass you have to work with doesn't seem to change, right? And and um, and that forms a, a limitation. Um, yeah. So um, ho hopefully that answers your question. Mm -hmm, yeah. Maybe I want to ask you if there's any still material in nature you have absorbed and still hard to maybe redesign in the lab. Material in nature was very maybe, yeah. Yeah, I don't see a lot of progress on materials that can replicate. Uh, we're seeing a little bit of it. You're seeing systems that can. Um, we see uh, it looks like recently the field with like Xeno robotics and so forth. They're going more the other direction. They're t t taking nature and mutating it towards towards the non-natural. But um, but in terms of like having completely synthetic things. Um, self self replicate. Uh, we haven't made a lot of progress there, and but I would also say that that is a characterization problem. That that is that, that fundamentally, you know, what it's going to take to do that. Um, we uh, we don't have the tools to to uh, to characterize the fundamentals of materials that could do that. And I say that I'll, I'll give a concrete example for your for your listeners. Right now in nanotechnology, perhaps the most 
the most impressive construction we can realize in nanotechnology uses, uses DNA. Um, DNA and its specificity, you, you can get you know, what's called regioselective assembly with DNA. And there's an area uh, called DNA nanotechnology. People have made these DNA bricks. You, you can do amazing things. It's, it's, no, um, it's no accident that it's DNA that's giving us that ability. It's be, but, but, uh, but it would not have happened if DNA weren't so important for life, it would not be studied uh, to the extent with the tools that it has and the ability to synthesize it um, to where we can then do DNA nanotechnology. It, it just so happens to be, it's, it's the one material that we can create, DNA in general, where we, we, specify, we specify it at the sequence level. And um, I want you to think about, like, could we, could we have synthetic polymers one day that are, that are um, dialed in at the sequence level? And uh, again, you could do that today, but how would you measure it? We, we, we don't have tools to, to, to measure it. So, you know, if you want to think about the future, you might think about DNA nanotechnology, but extended to everything, to just, to just any, any arbitrary organic molecule uh, that's concatenated together, you know, could it have a sequence selectivity the way we do with DNA? And when you do that, you'll, you'll, make, you'll make all kinds of uh, very interesting structures. You'll make things that have like lock and key and look like enzymes, but they're, they're, they're made of like urethanes and polyimines and, yeah, it, and, and other things, maybe inorganic materials as well. So hopefully that answers your question. I think the, the emerging theme is it does come down to tools that you can characterize, that you can use to characterize and measure. Mm -hmm. Right. Maybe it's a question list. I wanted to touch again, and I think in the beginning you mentioned longevity in the material. And I want to ask you when we design long-lasting material, maybe never damaged. I don't know. Do you believe that we can design material never damaged? But the consequences may be from, yeah, as a human and also coming up with commercial product. Do you think it makes sense here uh, in longevity in that case? I think with carbon fixing, you could make materials that last dramatically longer. Uh, that that is a um, that is that is almost a fact. Um, the um, the uh, the proof that I have of of that is uh, is mainly mainly mechanistic. If you uh, if you look at um, trees and biological systems, they uh, they li in terms of functional lifetimes, they live a lot longer than the lifetime of the constituent materials that they're made of. And the way they do that is with carb carbon fi fixation. Could you have a material that lasts uh, an infinite amount of time? The second law of thermodynamics says that that's impossible. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, it, it is a realizable goal to have a material that can have um, a dramatically extended engineering lifetime. Um, and, and you can do that through these tricks like, like uh, carbon fixation. Yeah, it uh, it's it's not a conceptual challenge. It's an engineering challenge. It's it is a uh, it's the question is uh, how how do you realize it? Yeah, I obviously think that, or I would not be working in that space. I obviously think we can get there. Yeah, but it but it's outside of just the conceptual uh, idea space. It's an engineering challenge. How, how do you get materials that last uh, that last an exceedingly long space? And I'll say too, just the motivation for that. Could never be more important. You know, I, I would like your listeners to to know that um, we use an enormous amount of polymer in our in our society, uh, worldwide, nationwide. 
uh, almost all of it goes to landfill. And still, the, the amount of material, the tonnage, it's tens of millions of tons per year just go right down into the hole, into landfill. Uh, nobody wants that. That it's completely it's a it's it's a complete loss. Uh, not only is material going into landfill, all of the energy uh, that went into making the the material is just getting you know dumped back um, into the earth. It's a losing proposition for for uh, for humanity in general. So th this idea of um, can we make materials that last dramatically longer that are more that are more valuable and so they won't go to landfill is um, is an important one. Like polymers give us a lot of advantages. They're very light. They're durable enough and, and light. Um, we save a lot of energy in, in moving and package, packaging materials in polymer. Um, but, but their lack of durability means they have this disposable nature. And um, and it, their lack of durability means that um, they, they fundamentally are not valuable enough uh, to keep them economically, it seems, from, from just being dumped into the ground. So uh, I think making those polymers more valuable, making it so that they can, if they can self-heal, they don't even need to be recycled. They're, they're healing themselves. They're sort of recycling themselves. And I, I, we need a dramatic rethinking of that. Mm -hmm. If there is any other maybe aspect, do you think maybe still not focused on the community when it comes to material design, maybe neglected or need more attention when it comes to the design? I would like and to get people to think about, about materials as not static, static entities. Uh, we sort of think of materials, we design them, we program them with properties, and then we sort of leave them out. And uh, maybe a good way to think about it, this does go back to maybe bi biomimicry. Can we think of materials as, um, I, and I don't want to be too philosophical here, but can we think of materials as like living, breathing things, things that will continue to be active? Uh, during their lifetime, and that that is a um, that is a fundamental reconception of what we think of as a material. You know, if we're talking about natural systems, it's it's uh, it's very com it's very com com common. But um, but for a synthetic material, you know, a, a block of a block of metal or a block of polymer, we don't think in that way. Uh, nanotechnology, to some extent, has given us new tools and new abilities to think that way. So uh, the, the idea that you, you could take a block of something and sort of embed at almost zero mass little things inside of it that give it new properties, um, that's a nanotechnology uh, idea. And it's been realized. Like I can take a polymer that is an electrically insulating. I can sprinkle in some conducting nanoparticles and I can make it a conducting polymer. And so um, this idea, I think, nanotechnology can help us to expand our vision of what a material is, like what it can be. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Maybe I want to ask you, uh, what makes you maybe fulfilled and satisfied when it comes to what you're doing? And if there's advice, maybe stick to your mind and was uh, maybe a life-changing advice. Uh, advice, I, when I was a, when I was a student, yeah, I, um, when I was a student, I had, I did an internship at, uh, at, um, Brookhaven National Labs, and um, there's a and uh, some advice I got there from the scientists there were to uh, to focus my career at the intersection between disciplines, that um, like where these two disciplines intersect. I mean now it's it's very common. I've heard that advice now routinely, but I want to I want to emphasize it as as well. Where when two fields come together, uh, there's a lot of of new discovery that can happen.
So that would be my advice in general, you know, to the to the listeners.